All right. Thank you, Katie. Uh, my name is Brian Wiles. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, if you're newer, checking out HCO for one of the first times, it is great to have you here with us. And even as Katie was just sharing, as she mentioned, she's on staff with us. And I've just been struck uh, over and over again this week of what an amazing team we have. And I'm so thankful to be able to be part of helping to lead that. And, uh, you know, you just think of all the things that are going on in our world. And, and there, there's a temptation to be drawn to all the hard things. But I look at what God's doing in our church. And I'm just so thankful. And I'm so excited to see him continue to work and use people like Katie and many of you to continue to work and do amazing and powerful things. So I'm blessed and privileged to be able to be a part of it. And I hope that you feel that way. If you're newer and you want to get involved, we'd love for you to do that. You know, today we are continuing on in our series in Romans chapter 8. We've been taking eight weeks to walk through one chapter, Romans chapter 8. It's one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture, and so we wanted to give some extra time to it. And uh, it's been a, a powerful chapter for us to look through. We are in our seventh of eight weeks, so we will wrap up this series next uh, weekend. And as we are about to jump in, we're going to look at just three verses today, but they're three very powerful verses very applicable verses for where our world is at. And as we're starting, I wanted to ask you to consider this question. And, and I want to ask you if you have ever started something and not finished it. Have you ever started something? A lot of you are like, yep, I'm right there, okay? I'm already preaching and people are getting excited about it because you can relate to that. You know, maybe you're a student and you've been given a project to do and, uh, and, and you're like, ah, I, you start it, you get, you know, to a certain point and you just can't bring yourself to finish it. Or one of, one of the things that I'm, I guess, infamous for in, in my own life is as a pastor and as a leader, I'm always trying to learn and read and, uh, and sometimes it's a discipline. So I'll pick up a new book and I'll start reading reading through the book, and, and it could be a great book. I could be learning a lot of things from it, but for whatever reason, I'll get like halfway or three quarters of the way through, and, and I'll set it down, and I just won't finish it. I, I won't put, put it all the way, take it all the way across the finish line, or maybe you have a house project. I have a couple of these right now, you know, that, that I started. I probably even have the time to finish, but for whatever reason, I just can't get myself to do it, and, and I know that that is, I like to tell myself, and maybe it's just to make myself feel a little bit better, but I like to tell myself that's part of human nature, you know? We have a tendency to start things but not finish them, and yet as we look at this passage today, we are going to see that God doesn't fall into that human nature that many of us have, but God finish, finishes what he starts, and that is something that is extremely hopeful and helpful during this season. In fact, our big idea is this, that God works for our good from the beginning to the end. From the beginning of all creation, when he created this whole world, he had you and I in mind, those that he loves in mind. And he started with this intent that he is going to work things for the good of those that love him, and he is going to end with that end as well. And so as we look at this passage, there is hope that can be drawn from it. I don't know about you, and maybe it's a little bit overstated in 2020, but I think that's just where we are. Where we are, as you look around our world, there can be so much negativity. There can be oftentimes trials and tribulations. And, and I don't know about you, but I've found myself thinking or saying or hearing other people say something along the lines of, we just need some good news. You know, we just, we just need a win. We just need something positive to focus on. And as we come to this passage today, it is exactly that. 
It is full of hope. It is full of life, especially for those of us who are believers that God is working in the midst of our world, that he is going to finish what he has started, that he, in fact, wants something good for all of us who know him and who love him. And so we are in Romans chapter 28, verses uh, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Uh, verse 28 is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. Some of us might even have it tattooed on our arm or it's hanging up in uh, our, our apartments or hanging up on our wall in a picture frame because it's these very comforting words. But we're going to today hopefully go a little deeper than just having it hanging up on our wall. We're going to dive into why it really can and should bring us comfort. So if you have your H2O app, you have your Bibles, feel free to open up and follow along with me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we're going to stop at the end of this verse, and, uh, and then we'll jump back in. It says this, and it says, and we know. Okay, so I just want to stop right there. Uh, that's one of the cool things about taking eight weeks in one chapter is you can stop every once in a while, even just after three words. Paul says, and we know. That's how he starts Romans 8. 28. And I think it's important for us because we always talk about reading scripture in context. If you were with us last week, we talked about this, this word knowing. But Paul uses it uh, the opposite way of what he's using it here. If you remember last week, Paul was talking about the groanings that are going on in our world and the groanings that are going on in our life. And Paul says, uh, there's so much going on that when we go to God to pray, we don't even know what to pray for. Paul's like, our world is so complex, our world is so out of control that I know that in, even in our own human strength, when we go to God to pray, we are so weak that we don't even know what should come from our prayer life. And so God has to intercede on our behalf through his Holy Spirit. And it says the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us these groans and cries out to God on our behalf. So Paul is contrasting that word to know. Paul, just a few verses earlier, says we don't even know what to pray for. But he says, now I want you to know what we do actually know. We, we in our own weaknesses, we don't know what the future should be. Uh, we're not sure. We need God's help. But here is what you can have confidence in. Here is what you can no, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. What powerful words for us to take in in the season that we're in. And it, and it draws us to this first point, that God is working everything for our good. That God is working everything for our good. It's directly out of the verse. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And wow, in the world that we live in, does that not give us some peace? That no matter what is going on all around us, God is going to somehow, being sovereign, use the circumstances that we find ourselves in for our good. He started a good work in us, and he's going to complete a good work in us. He is actively working for our good. And, and I want to look at this passage a little bit deeper because I know that even some of us, as we've heard this passage, we've maybe questioned what exactly it means. I know for some of us, we've even had this verse misapplied to us, and that can be harmful sometimes, because what, what sometimes people do with this verse, and, and specifically with verses like this, is they misuse it to, to say that everything that happens is good, you know? So maybe somebody will go through something really hard, really painful, and somebody, probably a good-intentioned Christian, might come up to you and they'll say, hey, don't worry, it's good. 
It's good. What happened to you is good. God's going to use it. That's not at all what this verse says right here, is it? Okay, because this verse is very specific to let us know that God works all things for our good, but not all things are good. In fact, in our world, we've created that phrase, right? It's all good. It's kind of a way, you know, it's kind of a fun phrase that we use sometimes, but sometimes it's a way, a phrase that we use to hide some pain. Maybe something hard happens to us. Maybe somebody breaks up with us. Maybe we lose a job. Whatever the case may be, in, in our, our, our defensive mechanism, it's all good. Listen, we don't have to fool ourselves that this world is all good. There is pain in our lives. There is hardship. There is sin. There is evilness. There is brokenness. There is sin that we commit. There are sins that are committed against us. It's not all good. I don't have to tell you that, right? We've been through it. We understand it. We experience it. So don't misinterpret this verse to assume that everything is good. But take confidence in the fact that God is working all things, even the bad things, for our good. And that's where the hope is. That's where the peace comes in. That God takes everything that happens, the good and the bad, and he uses, us, uses it to what? To, to finish a work that he's starting in us and continually work for our good. He's using that to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. See, God is sovereign. He's in control. He's over everything that is going on. And he sees us, even in our pain and our brokenness, and he enters into it. I love how this, this verse, it uses this, this verb that God is working all things for our good. God works. It's like this active verb that he's continually working. God doesn't just set everything into motion and then just stand back, hands off, not intervening into the world. God is working everything for the good of those who love him. He's alive, he's active, and he's working for the good of those of us who love him, even in hard situations. I think of the story of Joseph. You know, you think of all the different examples that this plays out in, in life, but I think of the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 36 through 50. If you're not that familiar with the story of Joseph, you should jump in and read it this week. It's such an amazing story. And just to summarize very quickly, Joseph uh, was one of 12 sons. His father Jacob favored him. I'm not the, the most famous expert in parenting, but I do have three kids, and I know something you probably shouldn't do is favorite one of your kids. And so as he favorited his son Joseph, what, what do you think happens? The other 11 brothers, they were envious of him, and they started to hate him. And so they came up with a plot to kill him. They decided to change it, and, and they would just sell him into slavery. So the, his own brothers sell him into slavery. He finds himself in Egypt, and through God's favor, he starts working in Joseph's life. And, and as he starts working, he starts gaining favor. And then even in the middle of that, he gets falsely accused, thrown into jail. And even in jail, God continues to have his hand on Joseph's life and he continues to work his way up to the point where he is like the governor of Egypt. His brothers think that he's dead and he is essentially running a whole nation. And uh, God gives Joseph this wisdom that this seven-year drought's going to come. And so he stores up food and he stores up provision for this drought. And so when the drought finally comes, all the nations around Egypt are in trouble, and Egypt is in a good position because of this one man, Joseph. And so there's this epic kind of moment at the end of the book of Genesis 
where, where Joseph is making decisions about how they're going to ration the, the supplies that he saved up. And his brothers work their way back to Egypt and they stand before Joseph, not even knowing that it's their brother that they thought was dead. And they come face to face with him. And all of a sudden, it's like the, the, the veil comes off and they realize that's our brother who we sold into slavery, and now he has the authority to either have us live or have us die. And they think that certainly all hope is lost. And Joseph, in this amazing moment of grace, because he realized that God was working all those things for his good, Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, talking to his brothers, what you meant for evil, trying to kill me, trying to sell me into slavery, what you meant for evil, God used for good. What you meant for evil, God used for good. And there's this moment of reconciliation. And I think about that story, and I think about many of our experiences. And I know from being in ministry and just living life that some of us have been through some extremely hard things. Some of us are in the middle of some extremely trying and challenging circumstances. Some of us have had things done to us that are just outright wrong and evil. Others of us, we've actually done outright wrong and evil things. And so here is the question that every single one of us has to wrestle with and has to ask. Are we defined by the wrong, the hurt, the pain in our lives, or are we defined by God and his purpose for us? You know, it's like you look around at our world, and so oftentimes we are tempted, and I feel like the world is projecting on us that you are defined by what is done to you. You are defined by your mistakes. You are defined by, by your failures. You are defined by your hurt. And when we allow those things to define us, it puts us in a cycle of misery. And yet what Scripture says is we don't have to deny that those things happen, but yet we can run to the hope and the truth. That when we love God and when we know him, we're not defined by those things. We're not defined by what's been done to us. We're not defined by what, what we've done. We are defined by God's purpose in our life. We've been called to his purpose, and that is what defines us. And as we experience that, there's life, and there's joy, and there's freedom. So what defines you here today? What defines you? Is it the hard painful circumstances in your life or is it the hope of God that he is working everything for the good of those who love him I would contend here today that if we want to be the people that God has called us to be we need to wrestle with this question and we need to train our minds that we will live and walk and be defined by the purpose that God has for us let's let that set us free all right let's jump back into the text Paul makes a transition here, and he's talking about the things that we know, and he's talking about the certainty that God is going to work for our good from the beginning to end, and he starts to go into this theological description of how God is working from the beginning to the end on our behalf. In verse 29, he says this. He says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Wow, we have a really like feel-good verse. God's working everything for our good. And now we're talking about predestination, justification, glorification. Uh, we went from a feel-good verse to a seminary class very quickly, right? 
but it leads us to our second point is this, that God has the power to save. God has the power to save us. And, and I think we, we need to address this topic because Paul is tying them together. While it may feel disjointed, it's, it's not disjointed. Paul's saying, listen, God's sovereign. He's in control of all of this from our circumstances to our eternal destiny. But it, it, it has us wrestle with this idea of predestination versus free will. And so I want to read a quick quote and I want to jump in just briefly to talk about this, this topic. The quote is from Millard Erickson. He wrote a, a systematic theology book that is extremely helpful if you're ever wanting to wrestle with some of these questions. And he says this about the doctrine of free will and predestination. He says, of all the doctrines of the Christian faith, certainly one of the most puzzling and least understood is the doctrine of predestination. It seems to many to be obscure and even bizarre. It appears to others to be an unnecessary inquiry into something that exceeds the human capacity to understand. Such theological hair-splitting is considered to have little, if any, practical significance. Perhaps more jokes have been made about the doct this doctrine than about all other Christian doctrines combined. Yet, because the biblical revelation mentions it, the Christian has no option but to inquire into its meaning, even if it's difficult and obscure. So what Erickson is saying here is, listen, this is a doctrine that needs to be wrestled with because it's in Scripture. And while we may not completely understand it, we need to at least have a, a baseline understanding because it relates to the character of God and who he really is. And so I'm going to, in the next six or so minutes, try to boil down a debate that has been going on for centuries, and there have been pages written about. Um, Maybe a bad idea, but I'm going to try to, and I'm going to just oversimplify the argument. Again, I'm not sure if that's how you should do it, but um, because we need to and take our time here, I want to oversimplify the, the argument theologically to try to give a, a understanding. Essentially, there's kind of two sides to this argument, and, and, and the main question of do we have free will or are we predestined, kind of comes down to this. If you could just simplify it to, to one question, it's this. Uh, whose role is our salvation? Who's responsible for our salvation? Those who are on the side of Calvinism, which Calvin is just a, a theologian that would align with predestination, those who are on the side of Calvinism would say uh, the role of salvation is entirely God's. It is completely God. From the beginning of time, he predestines it, and, and it is 100% God. And then those who are on the side of Arminianism or free will, they would say kind of the opposite. They would say it's more on us as humans. We have the, the choice and the responsibility to, to make a decision and to respond to God. And so you can see this chart right here. And, and like any theological debate, you know, the further you out you go onto the spectrums, you can start getting into false doctrines that, that take those different doctrines too far and start drawing some, some false conclusions. But, but here is the, the, the very simple way to explain it. Uh, the Calvinists would point to verses like the one that we're looking at right now that says God foreknew us and he predestined us and they would say that very clearly says that it's all God's work or they would look in the book of Ephesians in chapter one that says that, that we've been called before the foundations of the earth that we've been predestined to choose God and, and then Arminians, Arminians would look at, at, at 
verses like John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. It says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, so that whosoever believes in him. So that would seem to put more emphasis on us as humans, so that whoever, any of us, would say yes to him, would come to know him. Or Second or Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, slow, slowness instead, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So there's these two spectrums. Whose role is salvation? Is it God's? Is it ours? Where do we fall on the spectrum? And I'm sure as you kind of hear a very baseline understanding of the, the theological complexity of that, you might be thinking, I wonder what H2O stance is. I wonder what our church stance is. So be ready to write this down. Um, here is our stance. We don't have one on this topic, all right? We like to take the middle ground a lot of times, right? And, and of course, I'm joking with that, but at the same time, I think that, that we have to recognize that while this is extremely important, to draw like a dogma from it that could be divisive is not always helpful in the church world. I mean, we recognize that there's different perspectives on these different verses, but, but I will say, uh, as you look at our pastoral team and our staff team, many of us would kind of lean on, on the Calvinism side from the scriptures that are presented here. And, and, and I know that there's a lot that goes into that, and it's really not fair to do it justice unless you can really explain and dive into the topic. Uh, but I, I want to try to share just an analogy with you here for just a minute and see if it's helpful in trying to understand what we think Scripture points us to, because I think there's certainly a responsibility on, on both sides. And, and so I want to pull out of theology for a minute, and let's go to basketball, because that's where this analogy is going to be, okay? All right. Michael Jordan, one of the uh, debatedly most famous, maybe the best ever basketball player. I know some people are going to disagree with that, but he's up there, right? And uh, I, I remember very well growing up as a child watching him play a lot. And, and in 1990, his Chicago Bulls played my Cleveland Cavaliers. And I remember it well because there's, there's pain and there's hardship for there, but somehow God worked it for our good. And, and so there was this one particular game where Michael Jordan was just on fire uh, when he was playing the Cavs, and, and he could not miss a shot. And, and during that season, as they were making it to the playoffs, they had drafted a new rookie by the name of Stacy King. And Stacy King was this rookie that, I mean, honestly, got extremely lucky. You know, he got drafted to get to play with one of the greatest players of all time to be on Michael Jordan's team. And so his rookie year, they're playing the Cavs. I believe it was in the playoffs. And Michael Jordan is just on fire in this game. He's hardly missing anything. He is just completely dominating the game. Well, Stacy King, the, the rookie, gets in the game just for a few minutes here and there. And as Michael Jordan is just on fire, Stacy King comes in. He gets the ball. His first shot he shoots and misses, you know, and they pass it to him again. He shoots and he misses. They pass it to him again. He shoots. He misses. He is 0 for 4 from the field. A little bit later on in the game, he gets fouled. He goes to the foul line. He misses his first foul shot, makes his second one, okay? So, so by the end of the game, Michael Jordan scored 69 points and Stacey King scored one point. And it's at the end of the game, they're doing the press conferences, they're, they're talking with Michael Jordan, hey, what do you think of the game? And then they interview this rookie, Stacey King, and they say, uh, Stacey, what are you going to remember 
from this night. And, and he said this quote. He said, I'll always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> I always remember that, you know, and of course he was having fun with it, but the implication here, and, and no analogy is perfect, okay, so don't come after me after this, but the implication is, as you picture this, this guy who, who knew he contributed very little to the victory of that game, but yet he realized that it was a pretty big privilege for him to be a part of being on Michael Jordan's team, and as we think about the theology and we take it back to this text, we come to the realization that God is the hero of this story. That God is the one that essentially has scored all the points. God is the one who's done all the work. And yet he invites us in to the process. He gives us the opportunity to respond. He allows us to say yes to him. See, salvation is God's work. But at the same time, we still have to respond to the calling that he has on our lives. You know, again, we talked about how both theological spectrums can kind of go off the rails at the end. Well, one of the, the ways that Calvinism can go off the rail uh, at, the, at the very end of predestination is some people would say, well, it's already all preordained anyway, so I don't need to do anything. Or some, some people who are even Christians would say, I don't need to tell other people about Jesus because God's already preordained who's going to come to him and who's not, so God doesn't need me. And of course, that's true. God doesn't need us. Michael Jordan didn't need Stacy King. But at the same time, God allows us to be part of his team, to be part of his mission. God allows us uh, to be part of, of the greatest purpose that we could ever have. And what an amazing privilege that is. So why wouldn't we want to respond? Why wouldn't we want to say yes? Why wouldn't we say, want to say, God, I want to be on your team. I don't have much to offer, but I want to be part of it with everything that I can give. You know, we get to partner with God in helping to rescue and restore a broken world to him. We get to see and be part of God working for our good, for the good of those who love him from the beginning to the end. So here's the question for all of us to answer and to wrestle with here today. Is God calling you? Is God calling you? It says those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. When it says he justified us, it means to make us right before God. When it says that he glorified us, again, it's a theological term that means someday for those of us who are in Christ, we will be made perfect in eternity, and we will be with God forever, and there won't be any more brokenness or pain or sin. It will be all good someday. And so is God calling you to walk with him? I venture to say if you're here, I venture to say if you have this urging to hear God's word, I venture to say that if you're here for any reason, God's calling you. And now you have to decide, am I going to respond? Am I going to say yes to him? And our hope and our prayer is that all of us could leave here with confidence we may not even know what's going on in the world. We may not even know what to pray for. But our, our, our hope as we leave here today is that we would know that God loves us. That we would know that God has a plan for us. That we would know that God is working for our good 
in each and every circumstance. And that starts with us saying yes to God. And as we say yes to him once, we continually say yes to him day after day as we seek to follow and walk with him. So let's pray. And I even want to give us an opportunity for those of us who are either viewing online or who are, who are here right now that maybe haven't said yes to God yet, maybe haven't responded to that calling that he's put on your life. I want to give you a chance to, to say yes to that. And we're not going to make you come up on stage or do anything like that. But what I would ask you is if, if you're going to say yes to God today, would you just tell somebody that you know knows him so they can help you grow and, and walk with him more closely. So bow your heads and let's pray. God, we thank you for the fact that you have called us. Lord, as we look at what you've done for us on the cross through your son, we're humbled. God, the gospel is such good news. And yet you initiated it, Lord. You left heaven and came to earth to show us your love. God, would we respond to that deep love that you place in each one of our hearts? God, we, we say, those of us who maybe never said yes to you here today, some of us might want to pray right now and either repeat after me or pray in their own words that, that we're broken, that we're lost, that not everything is good in our lives, and that we need you. Uh, this might be a moment where we come face to face with that reality for the first or first of many times. So God, will we turn our hearts and our lives over to you? God, we say that we need you to be made right, to be justified before you. Now, there's nothing that we can do on our own strength to turn to you. And so God, we simply surrender our lives to you. We say our, our sin has separated us from you, but your grace and your son dying on the cross has reunited us with you. So God, we, we accept that calling that you have on our lives. God, would you give us the strength and the grace to walk with you all the days of our lives? Would you help us to know you and trust you and follow you? Would you help us to lovingly share with others how you're continually working for our good. Thank you that you finished the work that you started in each one of us. God, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you here today. In your name we pray, amen.